Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thanks for listening. Now, on to today's episode. Do our bodies really belong to us? How did Jesus eat, and how does that speak to how we eat today? How do the sacraments speak to our bodily identity? And what does it mean to break bread together? And where's the good news for those of us who struggle with how we see food? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'm talking to the Reverend Dr. Liz Kent. Liz is Director of the Wesley Study Centre at St. John's College in Durham and a Methodist minister in Chesler Street. Her doctoral research explored the church and eating disorders. So our question today is, what role does eating play in a good theology of the body? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Liz Kent, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much. It's really good to be with you. Liz, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and the roles you've taken before and what your current ministry involves. Okay, so I grew up in Sheffield and I went to Liverpool University to study law. Uh, Stayed on there and did a research degree in charity law before working for the Methodist Church in higher education chaplaincy. And from there, I came to Durham to train for ministry. And from there, my first place as a Methodist minister, I moved all the way to Gateshead, opposite the Metro Centre, where I was a minister for nine years in circuit ministry there. And then I've been involved with the Wesley Study Centre at Durham as a part-time tutor, and then uh, became director of the Wesley Study Centre just a couple of years ago, which I do part-time alongside circuit ministry in Chesley Street, where I'm the minister at Chesley Street Methodist Church. Now, Liz, as part of your journey, you've done the academic research and you've explored the theologies of the body and in particular, the relationship between the body and eating and how that intersects with the life of the church. Tell me, where did your interest in this particular topic first come from? It came from a really practical place, really. I mentioned 20 years ago, I was working in university chaplaincy and I was also uh, working at a growing church with students and young adults. Uh, thriving children and youth work. And I just kept having conversations, particularly with gifted young women and quite a few young women in leadership positions or potentially going on to lead the church. And we had these conversations about struggles with body image, with food issues, with eating disorders, with pressure, and the fact that nobody in church seemed to talk about it. And it was kind of under the radar. I remember working with one of these young women on leading a service for the young adults of the church on body image. And somebody invited their friend and they said, well, if church was always like that, I'd come to church because it kind of touched the issues that were live issues for them and spoke into how God may bring hope and strength and a vision for the future. So that was quite a formative time. I then laid that aside for a few years 
But then when it came to taking up uh, PhD research, it was something that just wouldn't go away. And it was that opportunity to explore the intersection between theology, psychology, sociology, around eating disorders, body image, and look at different ways that the church had attempted to respond, both pastorally, practically, theologically. Now, on this podcast, we've had a previous conversation with Paula Gooder about the theology of the body. And her work was, you know, was particularly concerned with the way the Apostle Paul had a theology of the body and the way that's been both interpreted and misinterpreted. As you began to look at the intersection between theology, body and the church, what have been for you the key theological reference points for engaging with and perhaps challenging our understanding of the body? I think living in the era and the society that we're living in today, we've absorbed the idea that our bodies are individual bodies. And everywhere we look, bodies are used like an artist's canvas to project the image that we want to project. So the clothes that we wear, whether we work out or not, what we eat, what filters we use on Instagram, whether we try to conform to a particular group or subculture, or whether we try and use our bodies to stand out from everybody else. We live with this idea that our bodies are our own and they are a physical, visual way to express who we are. We're used to living in a society which protects the individual's body and preserves that principle of bodily autonomy. Legally, the presumption is that you can do what you like to your own body and that others are prevented from inflicting harm on your body. That's the way that it works. And we've absorbed quite a lot of platonic ideas. As Paula Gooder said, you know, we've kind of split into this body-mind dualism, which is not how I think the New Testament understands embodied living to be. We've often translated what we live into our theology. So we look at an individualistic theology backed up by texts such as, do you not know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? To say, yes, we've got to look after your own body, take care of your own body. And we've made it quite individualistic because our society is individualistic. And it is good to take care of our bodies as part of our integrated selves. But it's even more than that when you start to consider the corporate and relational nature of being embodied as part of the church. The theology that sort of challenges this uh, purely individual approach is when Paul does use that image of Christians being the body of Christ. So we are many parts of the one body. And the truly stunning thing about that is coming to that place that goes, okay, my body is not my own. Being in Christ means that all of me, including my physical body, belongs to Christ. So it's that flipping of the idea that this is my body and I do with it as I choose to my body belongs to Christ. And because our bodies belong to Christ, even more challenging to our individualistic ears is that we are part of the body of Christ with all the other members of the body of Christ So what I do with my body deeply affects other parts of the body of Christ. So there's this corporate understanding of our bodies being connected to one another so that when one part suffers, other parts feel that pain. Um, And you can extrapolate that into all sorts of different practical outworkings that where one body is suffering, others feel it. And in the middle of a pandemic, that sense that we are unable to draw close to other bodies who are suffering is a source of deep, deep pain. 
And we realise that we are more than just individual, isolated bodies. Conversely, when we see our own body as part of the body of Christ, our body has value regardless of what it looks like or what it's able to do. So one of the key influences on me was the work of Stanley Halvas, looking at the embodied practices of the church. So what does the physical act of baptism tell us about new identity in Christ? What does the embodied act of eating bread and drinking wine witness to as our very imperfect bodies focus on the broken and crucified and risen body of Jesus? So you're exploring with us, Liz, this idea that the Christian faith offers a very pertinent challenge to an individualistic understanding of the body in at least two directions. First of all, my body is not my own, it belongs to Christ. And secondly, my body is not my own because if I belong to Christ, therefore I belong to one another in Christ. And that sort of offers a twofold challenge to this very kind of introspective, individualistic way I might treat my body. We'll come back to some of those points later on. I'd love to hear more about baptism and the Eucharist, for example. But let's just think a little bit about one of the areas you explored in more detail, which is to do with eating, and in particular, disordered eating, or we might call unhealthy patterns of eating. Can you get us thinking about that particular theme and help us identify what are the theological questions at stake for you as the church explores and supports people who live with disordered eating? I think partly we've lost a sense of understanding food in its broadest context. So often when people have struggled with food, it's either the ability to control food as one of the few things that they may be able to have control over or significance of food. So the church has traditionally understood food as good, as a gift of God. And I think that's really where I'd want to start. That's where I'd want to go back to that affirmation of God's goodness in creation that, you know, Genesis chapter one, God provides food as part of a creation, which was very good. One of the things I found very interesting studying the diet and weight loss industry has been the moral labels that have been attached to different foods. So people will automatically in their heads, maybe think about good foods and bad foods. We talk about naughty foods, and healthy foods, and they've become laden with particular moral overtones. A very well-known UK weight loss program actually uses the term sins. And this is one of the things that led me down all sorts of interesting explorations that often the church is maybe reluctant to talk about sin. And yet here is a major weight loss program labeling certain food as sins. It might be spelt slightly differently, but Food has become labelled as morally good, morally bad. And I think when you start to think in those terms, it starts to affect whether we can enjoy food, God's good gift, as something that is good or whether it's something that becomes oppressive or dominating. Um, and it takes on a, a power that actually is unhelpful or unhealthy in certain contexts. Your research looked at the way in which a good theology of the body is intrinsically tied to a good theology of eating. 
So can you help us think a little bit more about that? If food is a gift of God, what are the theological drivers that might lead us to a good theology of eating? And what are the the opportunities and the challenges of getting that message across? I think there's something about the fact that we can use the gift that God gives us in a number of ways. We can use it well or not. I think looking at Jesus, he spends an awful lot of his time eating in the Gospels. And he does so in a context where it's bound up with who he eats with. So when Jesus shares food in the Gospels, there are the sort of range of settings from very simple food to dinners given by privileged people. And obviously in that culture, who you ate with, how you ate, whether you washed before eating, who was in the place of honour when you ate, all those things had a massive social significance. And so in terms of how might we understand a good pattern of eating or eating well. I think we can fall into two extremes. One is to say, well, food doesn't matter. It's just fuel for the body. And that takes you down the kind of body is bad, matter is bad. The only thing that matters is the spiritual. And Paula Gooder is very helpful in her podcast talking about that. The other one is to become really focused on food so it becomes, I was going to say, all-consuming, which is not a helpful place either. So there is something about celebrating eating and those with whom we eat, but also it's the old-fashioned virtue of temperance, finding that balance of time to feast and time to fast, and that pattern will be different for people, I think. It just strikes me, Liz, listening to you, that one of the things that's striking about Jesus' engagement with food, it was always done with others. And it brings you back to what you said earlier about the way we understand our body is in relationship to others. And therefore, the way we understand our eating is, to some extent, in relationship with others, whether we are actually physically eating with somebody or not. But nevertheless, we're part of others who are eating. Is that right? I think so. Eating with is something that Jesus does so often because it validates those with whom he eats. And that in itself is healing and restorative. And so when eating becomes attached to withdrawing from others and becomes attached to shame, that's very much the opposite of what I see Jesus modelling as something that when you eat with people, they know that they are accepted, they know that they are loved, and it nourishes them spiritually as they are being nourished physically. I think that's one of the ways that we can articulate from a Christian perspective why disordered eating is a distortion of what God would want for us, because the effect of it is to further isolate people. It's all bound up with shame and regret rather than being set free and finding freedom in Christ. You mentioned earlier, Liz, the work of Stanley Hauwas and his exploration about the physicality of the two sacraments given to us by Jesus, baptism and the Eucharist, Holy Communion. And you explored, I know in your your research, how those very physical sacraments connect with our view, not only with the body, but also connect with our view of eating as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see those connections playing out? I think one of the things with baptism is that baptism is the sacrament about identity. It says who you are in Christ. 
And whether that happens as an infant or whether that happens in believer's baptism, it is that reminder of new identity in Christ. And one of the struggles, one of the key drivers within disordered eating is a struggle about identity, about who one is and how to come to a comfortable understanding of that. And so from the research about psychology and drivers for eating disorders, one of the key things was about identity, another was about autonomy, another was about perfection. And I looked and saw, actually, baptism speaks to identity, that in Christ we are loved because God loves us and we are welcomed into his family by grace not because of what we look like, not because of what we've achieved, not because we've set some external standards, not because we've decided who we are. God knows who we are and in Christ has loved and redeemed us. So that's where the baptism link comes in, in terms of identity. And Eucharist is a remembering of that baptismal identity. So whilst baptism may happen to us once, Eucharist is that regular remembering remembering, becoming part of the body of Christ as we remember to whom we belong and why we belong. And even if we can't theologically rationalise that, the faithful act of receiving bread and wine is that mystery that, that actually is able to do that without words and cognitive thought, thus reaffirming identity. We're being fed with others and that corporate sense of that meal is again another reinforcement of that sense that we are experiencing our body in relationship with others. Yeah, and so Paul, when he's speaking to the Corinthians about the right way of handling communion, that actually if some are feasting and some are starving, that's dishonouring the body of Christ. And so when maybe we look around at the people with whom we are receiving communion, if you ever seen them maybe walking up, if people are receiving from a point, that sense of we are, we are the body of Christ together. And so there is that communal eating together and identity together and belonging together. And our bodies may go to disparate different places after the service and we may have come from different homes or families. But actually, it is that remembering of who we are. In our difference, we all look different. But in Christ, we're one. You mentioned earlier about one of the ways we can discern that disordered eating is unhelpful and not the pattern that God wishes is the way it leads to isolation and shame. I'm struck by those powerful images from the latest series of The Crown, you know, where Diana struggles with bulimia. And that sense of withdrawing and shame and isolation is all too familiar. But I know in your research, Liz, you've actually given significant voice to the witness and faith of survivors of disordered eating. I wonder if you could give us some insight into how you've seen the transformative aspect of the gospel at work in people's lives and and what you found yourself and, and therefore what we might learn from them. I was so grateful for various people who I've encountered through this. And I went to United States of America and there was a church that I spent some time at there who were running a 12-step ministry that included groups for those whose eating was that challenge. 
and I spoke to a young woman there who said actually it was only when she connected in with the church and was able to be honest about her life and her eating disorder. And she found healing through the love and the acceptance and the grace and the opportunity to be real and authentic and accountable to others through that. And that was the that was a significant thing for her. And one of the things that I talk about is the practice of confessing and accountability. It might be partly my Methodist heritage and the Methodist class meetings and band meetings where people were encouraged to confess their sins to one another and be accountable for their living that they may kind of grow in grace and holiness. Now, the church has let go of that a bit, but it is happening in Weight Watchers group and Slimming World groups and 12-step groups. And sometimes I wish the church was as good at being that place of genuine openness where people can pour out their hearts and be accountable. And um, so that's one of the things that actually has challenged me from those who I've met who live with a vulnerability and yet an honesty and an integrity, which is very compelling. You mentioned earlier, Liz, about those three words that seem to haunt a contemporary search for meaning, identity, autonomy, and perfection. And you mentioned the way in which kind of baptism speaks into the identity question that we are Christ's. Identity is in him. I wonder, where does the gospel speak to you about those two other dominant themes about autonomy and perfection? Where's the good news that might speak into those two areas? I think in terms of autonomy, there is that thing about wanting to direct our own path to be our own person. And I think the good news within that is that doesn't fall on us, but the call of God is to follow and that we can trust him. And that journey will not always be easy, but we don't have to forge our own autonomy. So I think there's good news there. Perfection is the one that I've wrestled with most because Methodism, you may know, John Wesley talked about the doctrine of Christian perfection, about whether we can be perfect in love in this life. And so to what extent is there a difference between Christian perfection and perfectionism, which is an unhealthy perfectionism, which is difficult to achieve? And I think I would say they are different things. And that the grace of God is the key thing within all this that we are saved by grace and not by physical perfection or being perfect in behavior or perfect in our chosen field or having a perfect photograph on social media. So all the things that drive us to be perfect, if we can just know that it's the grace of God that underlies his amazing love for us, we don't have to strive to achieve that perfection. That kind of flips that on its head. I think. I was struck when I watched a very moving program with Andrew Flintoff, the former England cricketer, speaking very honestly and candidly about his struggles with bulimia. And he talked about working out for years to get the six pack, you know, the six pack of a magazine front page. And he, he sort of got it one day and he thought, oh, right, so what? 
you know, what next? He'd striven for that that model of perfection and found it didn't love him back, whereas the grace of God does. Is that something you echo? Yes, and I think perfection is so elusive as an ideal that whatever we define in terms of perfect, if we define it, it will never, ever be good enough. It will never, ever be achievable, which sounds like why bother trying. But it is elusive and it is damaging if it becomes all-consuming. And I think we can we can actually say, well, the good news is that there's only one, only been one perfect one, and that is Jesus. And in him, we can know love and security that is not dependent on our being perfect. Liz, you talked about this journey going back to your university chaplaincy days and then taking you through academic research. What have been for you the personal learnings, if I could ask, for your own faith and journey with Jesus, the ways in which these theological explorations and personal testimonies have spoken to your own walk of faith? I remember all the way through doing the PhD, I would live in these different worlds. I would live in the world of um, academic conferences and academic conversations, and people would say, what's your PhD research? And I said, it's looking at the church and eating disorders. And they would go, goodness, that's really practical. That's really, really practical. And then I would speak to people in local church and they'd say, so you're doing a research degree. What are you doing it in? I'd say, church and eating disorders. And they say, oh, that's a bit niche. Is anybody interested in that? So I lived in these two slightly different worlds. And I think the learning for me has been integrating the two of them. And the people who helped me most have been those people who, after I've spoken at something or shared, have come up and said, I needed to hear that. Or I'm so glad you're doing this because my niece, my granddaughter, my nephew, my brother is in the situation you're talking about. So I think the personal learning for me has always been that the good news has to be good news on the ground. But without the good news in academic theology, there will always be people like those students that I spoke to who went, well, nobody in the church thinks about this issue or nobody in the church talks about this. How do we understand where God is in these really challenging issues? Well, you've given us a great example of connecting the theological explorations with the practical outworkings. Liz Kent, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really good to be with you. have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>